Thomas Pradeux is a research director at the CNRS in Bordeaux, in France. He is a philosopher by training and currently leads a group called Immunoconcepts. His work focuses on the philosophy of biology, particularly exploring conceptual aspects of immunology, as well as evolution, cancer, and the microbiome. The approach of his group is to clarify concepts, like what the self means or what memory means in the context of biology, and to review current theories or models to then make sure that experiments are conducted in the most productive way. So arguably you can call this philosophy in biology rather than philosophy of biology, and it's already been proven to be very fruitful for future scientific research. Um, so let's jump straight into it. What I want to start by asking you is if like microscopes, cell lines and PCR machines and so on are the tools of the experimental scientist, what would you say are the tools of the philosopher? So that's a very difficult question, because at the same time, we can say that philosophy has been around for a long time and has a sort of methodology. But simultaneously, it's difficult to say that we have the same kind of well-identified tools that scientists will have. And also the change through time of our tools is very different. So our tools are mainly conceptual analysis, um, connecting different fields together, and more generally thinking in terms of big picture. And finally, being critical in the sense that one of the things I think that philosophers have done very well over the years or over the centuries is to disagree with everything, basically, you know, to say, oh, maybe we can see things differently. So basically, these are our tools. It's been our tools for uh, centuries, really. And now the question is more how we want to use these tools. And I think that when a scientist uses a microscope, it's pretty clear what she's doing and what she wants to do, even though the conclusion might be surprising. For a philosopher, it's not just difficult to identify the tools. It's also a major question is, what are you going to apply these tools to? And when you want to apply these tools to science, I mean, to scientific stuff, then it becomes extremely complicated because the tools are complicated and how you apply those tools to scientific matter, scientific uh, uh, aspects of that is, is another difficult question. Um, yeah, and I'm sure people get kind of puzzled when you say you do philosophy about and on immunology. Could you maybe clarify, like, typically at what stage of the scientific process you're involved? Yeah, so the way most philosophers uh, intervene with regard to science, if, if they ever intervene in, in, in science, is rather downstream rather than upstream in the sense that, for example, they will take some results that are pretty well known in science and they will say something about that. For example, there are some studies about uh, microbiota and the self and they will say something about the definition of the self that follows from a certain study that has been published in science. And that is super interesting and ourselves, we've done quite a lot of that. We tend increasingly to intervene upstream in the sense that now we want to intervene in the design of uh, experimental research, which I think is much more exciting first, and second is much more fruitful in the end. Although that requires some good knowledge of what's, what, what's going on in science, and also it probably requires to be um, uh, embedded in a scientific lab, as as we are here in Bordeaux. So we so so we are a, a team of philosophers embedded in a in a scientific lab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean to keep like we always use the metaphor of um, 
a scientific domain as a field. So like you as a farmer, you'd be like planting seeds um, upstream of the process. That's that's the hope. And sometimes it's very fruitful uh, in the sense that you have a nice tree at the end or at least something like, a, you know, something like an interesting, an interesting fruit or an interesting flower. In many cases, it doesn't work. I mean, this is something I really want to insist upon the kind of things that we do as what we call philosophers in science rather than philosophers of science, what we do can also be a failure. And this is very important to realize that in the same way that most experiments do not work, most interventions of philosophers into science are likely to fail if we don't ask the question properly, if we don't do, if we don't team up very well with very well identified scientists who will help us to identify a question and answer that question. So you see what I mean? There's a lot of reason why something would not work, but indeed the idea is to intervene as early as possible in the scientific process. Yeah, I mean, I wonder when you say um, that your intervention, for example, would not be successful. Because I guess for your idea, just like ideas in general, it's hard to assess the impact they have since typically they work quite implicitly. I mean, if I take a statement like viruses are detrimental to human health, it's not something that you can like neatly map to one publication and cite at the bottom of a paper. It's more something that like covertly influences what research gets funded, what medical students think about. So how can you essentially assess the influence that an idea had on the field? Well, it's, 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 it's tough. It's, it's clearly something which is difficult, but our way of doing that is really to determine to what extent some scientists have been explicit, I mean, you know, say they've been uh, influenced by one idea, one question, one way of thinking that we philosophers have put forward. And then we tend to be, you know, to focus quite a lot on citations and publications in the sense that one of our main aims is to publish our work in science journals, which is already an achievement for a philosopher. You know, the editors don't know you're a philosopher. The uh, reviewers don't know you're a philosopher and you, and as a philosopher, you manage to be published in a high impact journal. That's pretty demanding for us and difficult. And the first sign that something has been convincing enough for the scientific community that it might have some influence. And then, then there's the question of how is that idea picked up by scientists? And, and the main thing for us and the main way for us to assess that we've been useful, if, if we're sometimes useful uh, in the end in science, is when scientists will explicitly say by their citations, for example, that something has been very important for their own thinking. So you see what I mean? It's very qualitative most of the time. It's very uh, difficult to say, you know, oh, I've been very important for that idea or for that. But in the end, those things happen pretty often. So just to take an example, which is very different from what we do here in the immunology lab in Bordeaux, um, I interviewed recently for Dolittle, who is a major uh, evolutionary biologist and geneticist who is in Canada. And, and he is very clear on who are the philosophers who have been crucially influential on him. And I think that, you know, you see some examples of that. And what is very interesting is to go into those examples and to understand exactly what's going on and how a philosopher, for example, by suggesting a new concept, can then influence the biologist who will do experiments that he or she would not have done without that uh, uh, concept. So this is the kind of things we are aiming at, not always succeeding uh, in doing, but uh, the kind of things we are aiming at. Yeah, I think a few thoughts about that, because if you think of something like division between innate and adaptive immunity, I couldn't really tell you um, 
how I was brought to think that way. It's more of like implicit in everything that's taught. And it, it comes with obviously um, conclusions on the way scientific um, research is done. So for example, in vaccine trials, we don't typically look at innate immunity because we think, oh, adaptive is the memory compartment. And that's not something that you can track in the citation count. But I guess um, you do mention it and citing in scientific papers is like a very codified process that garners a lot of attention. Do you have anything to say about maybe ways in which you think it can be improved? Or if you think we can indicate authorship or ownership of ideas in a more productive way? That's, that's very difficult. And it's even more difficult when we're talking about ideas rather than, for example, a technology or a technique where, I mean, those, I mean, techniques are much easier to follow through time. You know, who did what? You know, there are many problems with techniques and technologies, but the problems are much stronger for ideas where it's never clear who had the idea in the first place. And it's also something that is very clear when you're a philosopher, you are saying something crazy until it becomes consensual. So first it's stupid, and then it becomes not even you who said it because it's part of a process of integration of something into, into science. So, you know, kind of following that for a time uh, via citations can be done, but it's, but it's a very uh, uncertain process and unreliable process. In general, I don't know how to improve those things. I just think that there's a growing tendency in science to realize that we're not just going to count things which are quantitatively uh, established in the sense that number of citations, for example, is something which is very important, but this is very partial. Qualitative citations are much more important in the sense that, for example, a lot of citations uh, are what bibliometricians call perfunctory citations. I mean, the people don't even read the paper. They have at most a rough idea of the, of the abstract. One thing which is much more interesting is when someone takes the time in a paper over 10 or 12 lines to explain why that paper is so important or why that question is so important or why that concept or theory is so important. And this is really what we are trying now to achieve, not just a number of citations, but more like qualitative, qualitative citation in the sense that people will say, oh, that philosopher, for example, has been important in my thinking for this or that reason. So this is more the kind of things we are trying to, to find and to have, even though, of course, as I said before, for us, even being published in science and being cited by scientists is, of course, something which is, you know, uh, very important for us. And just going back to your example, I think this is a great example. Innate adaptive immunity, everyone uses it. Everyone knows there are many problems associated with this distinction, but still, that distinction remains uh, very important. So, for example, I do quite a lot of oncoimmunology, cancer immunology, and it's very clear that immunotherapies, for example, are not thought through the lens of innate immunity. I mean, there are some exceptions, you know, a lot of work has been done on macrophages and, 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 and cancer immunology, for example, but the very, the very details of how we could achieve some better results uh, uh, in the field of immunotherapies by putting together innate and adaptive immunity, and maybe by questioning the very distinction between the two, which is very much related to what you were saying, I think that is not very much developed. And this is another example where being conceptual as we are as philosophers is potentially very helpful because redefining ideas and criticizing the way we have used them until now can be, I think, extremely useful for designing new experiments, for example, or to think 
about therapies in a, in a very different way. Yeah, to latch onto that, like, what do you think are the most common misconceptions about the immune system beyond the innate adaptive divide? There are so many of them, and this is why I'm fascinated. I mean, I mean, I'm, I do think that immunology is one of the most interesting fields for a philosopher, and this is not just because I picked up that field. It's really because I've been very much impressed over now almost yeah two decades probably of work that it's it's an incredible source of fantastic ideas, fantastic theories, and also misconceptions, which often goes together in the sense that because it is very conceptual you will also have some misunderstandings or misconceptions that are associated with this very conceptual framework, I mean, very conceptual way of thinking, which again is, I think, something which is a wonderful feature of immunology. It is simply not true that all biomedical fields are as conceptual and as theoretical as immunology. I mean, this is something which is very important to keep in mind also because this is a biomedical field. So yeah, I mean, one to me, the most important example in addition to my work on self, non-self and the critique, I mean, I, I spent a lot of years criticizing the self, non-self from both a philosophical and, and empirical point of view. Now, I think my obsession is more with um, what, something that every immunologist knows, but which is not something that then will be really put into practice when most immunologists thinks about this, think about those things. So the idea I have in mind is the idea that immunity is much more than defense. This, you know, this is something that everybody knows. I mean, everybody knows that immunity is much more than just defense. That being said, most people will think about immunity as exactly uh, a form of defense against, against pathogens. And the best evidence for that is when you have something like the new form of the immune system, which is found out somewhere, people will immediately call that immunity or an immune system because it eliminates pathogens. If it doesn't, people will be like, mm, yeah, it's immune-like or it is repair-like or it is. So the best example was CRISPR-Cas, of course, CRISPR-Cas systems in bacteria and, and, and more generally in archaea and, and, and bacteria, where it is very clear when you study that historically that people start thinking in terms of, oh, this is an interesting system. Oh, maybe this is a repair system. Or maybe this is a, a system that eliminates pathogens. And this is exactly when people start to focus on that. And there is this very good 2007 paper in science where there is the sort of confirmation that those prokaryotes can do some sort of adaptive immunity. And what is meant by that is that they can eliminate a given pathogen and they can remember it. So this is a very good example where immunity will be associated with defense and memory in a way which then will influence the whole field. And so if we go to something different, which is the kind of things that we do in the lab in connection with the hospital, because we're also part of the hospital, when you start asking things about the role of immunity in different processes, people still think about immunity in terms of defense. And that, I think, prevents them from uh, opening up other possibilities. And, and, and my work is quite, about, is, is, is quite a lot about that. You know, if immunity is about uh, repair, for example, tissue repair and tissue regeneration, what could we invent, for example, in cancer immunology, if instead of thinking about the immune system as a system of defense and elimination, we think about the immune system as a system of repair involved in repair and regeneration? If you do, what kind of new ideas are, are you going to put forward? What kind of new ideas can you test? 
what kind of new ideas could become a new therapeutic opportunities or avenues uh, in research in the coming years. So in a certain sense, this is very speculative. In another sense, this is exactly what I think as scientists we should constantly do, which is to open up possibilities and test a variety of possibilities instead of saying, oh, we all know that immunity is defense. At the same time, we all know that immunity is much more than defense, but we do nothing with the second idea. We just uh, immediately go back to the old idea that this is immunity is a form of defense. And then we invent all our uh, experiments or almost all of our experiments and all our uh, uh, therapeutic ideas on this very reductive idea about what the immune system is. So yeah, sorry, long answer to a short question. I think that is the main problem with immunology at the moment. We all know that immunity is not just defense, but we almost all act as if immunity was just defense. Right. So, but yeah, by recognizing there's an immune component to other processes, let's say like blood vessel formation or like tissue clearance, then that could like, yeah, invite them in the repertoire of what we could treat and not treat. That makes sense. Um, I am interested in speaking about self and non-self though, um, even though if that's as you say, your past interest, obviously hugely influential to immunology in that we think of most action of the immune system in rejecting non-self, be that um, like foreign microbes or uh, transplanted organs. Could you just briefly speak about the concept historically um, and what now leads us to believe that this framework is, I guess at best insufficient and at worst misguided? So, so the self non-self has been around in different forms, at least since the 1940s. Uh, very clearly, this is something that already exists at the end of the 19th century, but the terms are not used. So what uh, Burnett does, uh, the, 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 the Australian virologist, is really to put these very important concepts and to use them as a way of rethinking uh, immunity in general. And Burnett, as Medawar and others, are very much influenced by the idea that, you know, my body should accept an allot transplantation, but it doesn't. Why? Why is that so? And the self non-self will be the best framework to, in their view, to think about that. This was a major uh, improvement in the sense that it really helped to create new experiments. And it was really successful until at least the end of the 1980s. So many exceptions, of course, many people were like, no, it's not, it's not exactly that. But Burnett and others were very good at saying, yeah, of course, you can always find exceptions to a biological rule like self, non-self, but in general, it works pretty well. And some exceptions are just pathological exceptions. So it's just, you know, for some people, for example, if there are some autoimmune diseases, this is simply because their self, non-self mechanism does not work very well. So then the 1980s, 1990s, a lot of critiques of that uh, have been raised. So it's not just now, it's been around, I mean, the critiques of the cell non-cell have been there for quite some time. And Polly Matzinger, who has been kind of not forgotten, but I think she was a major figure of uh, immunology in the 1990s. And very few people know her now. She basically invented the danger model, danger theory that became sometimes the damage theory. And, and that theory also was very important and even uh, instrumental in the concept of DAMS, of danger associated molecular patterns. Most students today know about DAMS, but don't know about the danger theory. And I think even though I spent a lot of time uh, trying to show that Matzinger was wrong, I think she was great in suggesting a lot of critiques of the self, non-self on the basis of the idea that it was danger that was the interesting concept, the relevant concept to understand what's going on in, in immunology. And then, of course, the, the, the thing is that so many data accumulated against the pure view of the self non-self in the sense of strict view of the self non-self 
that, in my view, it has become almost impossible to defend the self, non-self today as a scientific theory. The only thing that you can do, I think, as, in, as an immunologist is to say, oh, these are good concepts. These are good ways to explain to my students what's going on in the immune system. This is convenient. This is... But I think it's very difficult to stick to the theory in the sense that the theory tells you that something that basically is self is not going to be the target of the action of the immune system. Something which is non-self will necessarily be targeted by the immune system. And of course, something that Matt Singer uh, could not uh, really foresee was the incredible work on the microbiome and the, the interaction between the immune system and the microbiome. And to me, that was... The, so I. I got into this field exactly at that moment and interacting with many people, especially my good friend Gerard Hebert at, at the Pasteur Institute, I could see, and, and Margaret Maxwell Nye and Scott Gilbert and all these people, I could, Rob Knight and others, I could really see this microbiome idea completely modifying the, uh, the views in immunology. So those views had been already altered by some people in immunology who were critical about, for example, the idea that we would not attack the cell, for example. And then suddenly comes all this literature on the fact that the immune system interacts and in a certain sense recognizes the microbiome and does not eliminate the microbiome. And that was a shock. Now it's, of course, it sounds like, yeah, sure, of course. But, but back then it was extremely surprising. People were like, what's going on? And they started to invent, as always in immunology, they started to talk about the gut and other organs as immunoprivileged organs. So when immunologists don't know why something is an exception, they talk about an organ being an immunoprivileged. And at some point you had a list of a hundred uh, uh, immunoprivileged organs in the sense that there were so many exceptions. That So I think now the situation is that nobody really believes in the validity of the theory, but some people still maintain the vocabulary of the self concept. And I would even say that the vocabulary is really um, uh, is still very present in immunology today. Yeah, so it's more like a philosophical scaffold now than anything else. Yeah, um, the, the, problem, the problem is that it prevents you from thinking in a different way. So that scaffold can be, you know, could have been productive in a certain cir set of cir circumstances, but can also be a sort of mindset that prevents you from thinking, uh, in more, I think, in more productive ways. Mm -hmm. That's true. And so an interesting point that you make was that the immune system essentially, like, actively delineates what the self is and constantly redraws its boundaries. So how do you propose that the immune system does that? Yeah, so I think th this is really where I think we must do a distinction between the self non-self in its original form and the kind of claims that I've been making about the role of the immune system as a system that delineates the boundary, contributes at least to delineates the boundaries of organisms. So I do think that the immune system does that in the sense that the immune system is a system of filtering over what is there in the organism and what might get into the organism. So it's really a filtering system in the sense that the immune system is an incredible, first, it is truly systematic. It's everywhere in the organism. Second, it is a system that is constantly controlling and surveying what's going on in the, in, the, in the organism, which is very special. You know, this is the only system that does that. And third, it is absolutely clear to me that the best way to understand the immune system is as a system of recognition of certain targets and either elimination of those targets or 
the regulation of the elimination of this target, meaning that's either it's going to eliminate something or it's going to say, oh, don't, don't eliminate that. You know, don't, don't do that. I think this is what the immune system does. And being that kind of system, very systemic, um, controlling what's going on in the organism and constantly being in a situation of eliminating things, I do think that the immune system from this point of view is an incredible system able to delineate the boundaries of the organism. Very importantly though, the immune system does not that on the basis of the origins of the targets under consideration. This is where the self non-self is wrong. The self non-self tells you if something comes from the inside, it's gonna be tolerated. If, if, it's com if it comes from the outside, it's gonna it's, it's going be rejected. What I'm saying is that the principle of acceptance and rejection is still central to understand what's going on in immunology. But this uh, discrimination is not based on the origin of the target under consideration, meaning that something that can perfectly come from the, come from the self and be eliminated, something can perfectly be non-self from the point of view of the self, non-self, many, many components of the microbiome would be in this, in this uh, situation and can be perfectly tolerated by the immune system. And when I say tolerated, because there are many papers that have been written against the concept of immune tolerance in the sense that initially, immunological tolerance was about ignorance. The immune system does not see something. What I mean is precisely the contrary. The immune system is seeing something and regulating that presence instead of eliminating it, like actively saying, I'm not gonna eliminate that. And I think that is super important to understand how the immune system delineates those boundaries. So super important for delineation, but not on the basis of, do you come from the inside? Do you come from the outside? Okay. Yeah. So like becoming part of the self is establishing some like functional coexistence with the immune system. Exactly. Though, yeah. Ex so it's more like constantly, I think an, an organism will integrate material that comes from the outside. And it does that immunologically, not just, you know, in nutrition or in, the, in those very well-known functions. Then you're asking a very good question, which is, is that integration going to be functional? And I think that can perfectly be the case, but it, it is not something which is necessary. For example, some components of the microbiome will play a functional role for me as a host in digestion, for example. Are they gonna help me to defend against other pathogens? This is what I've called co-immunity in the sense our immunity is very often the result of the host immunity and some immunity provided by some components of the microbiome. So those functions exist and those functions are super important. And part of my work has been on trying to demonstrate in which cases some very traditional, traditional sorry, physiological functions were co-realized by a host and the microbiome. But I don't think that this is necessary. Many components of the microbiome can be, for example, pathobiont, or they can change this. They can be dysfunctional at some point. And nonetheless, they're going to be tolerated by the immune system. So for me, the criterion is what the immune system tells me about something, is it tolerating that thing or is it rejecting that thing? And this is the immune system that tells me what, are, what the boundaries of the organism are. I'm not saying that the immune system is always right in the sense that the immune system would be capable of detecting what is going to be functional or not. In many cases, the immune system does you know, what it can. So it's like, okay, it looks okay to me and I'm gonna tolerate that. And in the end, that can be perfectly dysfunctional for the organism in the case of some microbiomes, in the case of cancer, for example, there's a lot of immunoregulation. So, so that sort of tolerance that in the end is detrimental for the organism. Yeah. Okay. So like 
it's like you're hiring someone and they just spend it there at the coffee machine and they're not really doing anything for you, but like you hire them in the company anyway. Yeah. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah. yeah. So one really fascinating thing to me about the self is like what it means to act in your own self-interest, because obviously depending on the scale at which you place the self, these might actually um, run in contradiction. So if I think of like myself as just my human selves versus me plus my microbes, or even me as part of a local community of humans, there are some cases where they're going to enter in conflict. Do you have any like good examples in, in biology where there really is a clear opposition between different scales of self? I don't know if I would systematically call them self or selves, but I mean, it really depends again on our definition of the self. One situation where this should happen immunologically is the possible tension between what's going on in one cell in the organism in contrast with what's going on at the level of the whole organism. And that is something where you could find, for example, you could perfectly define the self, the immune self of, uh, uh, of one single cell in your organism and then ask to what extent there can be tensions between what's going on at that level at this cellular self level and organismal self level. And those things clearly exist. Those things are truly exist. One question then is, should we call that two selves just because uh, a form of immunity also exists, you know, cell intrinsic immunity, for example, exists at the level of the cell. So this is something I've been interested in. I've been interested in tensions between levels of immunity, you know, that I think exists. I would be reluctant to call that two selves in competition because I'm not so sure that the self notion is still useful. You know, to me, the self non-self must be uh, associated with Burnett's idea of the origins of something, as I said before. This is why I don't use the self non-self anymore. I think this is problematic because the only scientific use of self non-self is to stick to what Burnett said, which was truly a scientific theory about self non-self. I don't think we should stick to self non-self if we just mean the organism, for example, or if we just mean a biological unity, a biological unity which is sufficiently homogeneous, uh, uh, identical for time, et cetera, et cetera. Those terms, I think, should not be used for that. But for example, if you're talking about tensions between levels of individuality, which is more the way in which philosophers of biology have thought about that, there are many examples of that. And I think that is, is super interesting. This is very, very interesting. Most people will say, for example, that cancer cells are a good example of a certain level of individuality that goes against the level of individuality of the whole organism. So there's a tension here. Sometimes people talk about cheating to think about that. And something which is super interesting is just imagine the many cases in which the immune system helps the tumors, the tumor cells, for example, they do that in CTCs, they do that in uh, dissemination, they do that in so macrophages do that, neutrophils do that, you know, many, many examples of that. Should we say that uh, those immune cells are you know, doing something that is detrimental to the organism? Yes. Should we say that we have a tension between two types of self in this case? I would be reluctant to use those sort of vague terms, but I do think that it points to an interesting uh, direction with regard to your question. So this is the kind of examples I would investigate and again, be, be careful about the use of self in those, in those cases. It's, it's kind of funny that you say that you almost need to emancipate from the concept of the self because that's common in so many schools of thoughts, like even Buddhism and so on, where they think like 
the self is is an illusion. Seeing the self as a separate entity should be overcome. And it's almost like we have things to learn. Oh yeah, and to be to be honest with you, um, I don't know enough about the details of the many philosophies of you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of diversity there, but I know a little bit about that. And meeting some uh, colleagues from Asia, always, always that question of what exactly is meant by self, non-self would come in the discussion. And a lot of what they're saying is very much related, I think, to what we just said. They say first, there's a constant fluctuation of the self. So we should be very careful with any sort of uh, substantialization of the self in the sense that you would say that's myself and this is the self forever. So that's one problem. And the second problem is that most people will think that the self is pure, that, you know, uninfluenced un by the, uh, the non-self. That's part of what it does. It protects against it. And, and many um, Asian, for example, uh, 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 wisdoms or, uh, or philosophies will tell you this is never the case. There's always an interpenetration of self and, and, and non-self, which I think is one of the conclusions that many people in immunology uh, came to. So, I'm, uh, so I don't know if we can say something you know, very powerful about that, but some people have written, I think, interesting articles about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, even if we do agree on a philosophical definition of the self, that's like, cohesive, countable, and well-delineated. It obviously doesn't mean it's not in interaction with its environment. And there, there's something striking I saw in that. I mean, even if you take a very gene-centric view and define the self from like origins and let's say the minimal gene set you need to replicate, arguably you need like the genetic machinery from plants, for example, to provide nutrients and vitamins. And so your genes are also like outsourced to other organisms and life becomes this like web of genetic interactions and so on so you may have a self but obviously it's interacting in this in this network oh that's that's very clear so so if you read richard dawkins for example the extended phenotype is a book about the way in which uh genes and environments constantly interact and genes do not uh, i mean Gene packages are not delineated in the intuitive way of organisms and their environment. So I do think that even the most uh, you know, radical uh, selfish gene person will believe that the environment is important and that those interactions are important. The problem is that that is not the end of the story. So people who say, you know, everyone agrees that an organism interact with its, with its environment, a self will always be in interaction with non-self. That is absolutely true. And this is very important to agree on that. But the thing is that people like me do not criticize that. People like me criticize the very fact that we can say, this is the self. So this is very different. Saying that A interacts with B is very different from saying there's no A, or it's very difficult to say what, what A is exactly. And how do you know what A is and how do you delineate A? So that's why before that, I was mentioning the fact that for me, I mainly try to redefine the organism and its environment with regards to the action of the immune system, which is a delineating system. This is mainly what I try to propose to the scientific community and philosophical community. And that I think is a step in what I see as the, the right direction in the sense that it's much more than just say, something interacts with its environment, but it also much more than saying, 
oh, nobody knows where the boundaries are. You know, many people in philosophy, for example, will tell you, oh, we have no idea where things start and end, you know, and that is very easy to say in the sense that, you know, we can always say we don't know, but I think we do know. I do think that an important step forward is to think about the organism in a way which is not reducible to the self-non-self distinction. So I think that is the, that is super important. If the self is about origins, then thinking about organisms in terms of self and non-self is extremely problematic. Yeah. And I think what we're getting to is like, there's what is the most formally precise and then what's the most productive, uh, which obviously may not be the same. And if we say, let's say, thinking of the organism as um, the metagenome and the collection of hosts and microbes, okay, maybe there's no like proper formal definition, but that's the most productive way to see um, like selection at a higher level. So I'll just maybe start using the word individuality now. Um, But it can be counterintuitive to think that natural selection can be exerted on like a higher entity. So like a partnership. Can you just explain like how that happens? Well, I think this 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 is I mean, there are two questions in your question. One is about um, selection over a group, and one is about selection over a heterogeneous group. In the sense that people will say, "Okay, that's okay to have something like selection over a group," because of the incredible level or degree of homogeneity between the components of this group. So, for example, um, in terms of transition, you know, major transitions in individuality or major transitions in evolution, this is absolutely clear that even the most extreme uh, critiques of group selection, like Maynard Smith, for example, John Maynard Smith, were tempted in 1995 in this great book uh, with uh, Chasse to understand how major transitions in evolution occur. And those transitions are transitioned from sort of sort of lower level entities, selection of the lower level entities to selection at the higher level. And in that case, what happens in many cases is that something that was a group becomes a new individual, exactly in the sense that, in the sense that you, just, you just used. So why is that difficult to think about those things? I think first, there was a lot of critique of old conception of group selection. And I think what happened in the 1980s, 1990s, that some people said, It really depends on what you mean by group selection. And I think quite a lot of what is called now multi-level selection was about clarifying that issue. And then today you find people who say, oh, I hate group selection. Other people who say, I like group selection. To me, this is not super interesting. What is, I think, interesting is to understand multi-level selection and to understand how it works. That, I think, is, is, is extremely important. And then there's the question of, can you do a transition towards a new level of individuality where there's a lot of genetic heterogeneity, and that is a very difficult question. So this is what uh, David Queller calls um, uh, fraternal transitions uh, versus versus egalitarian transitions. And I think that is a very good vocabulary. In one case, you go together because you're almost the same. There's a lot of homogeneity. Your genetic interest can be uh, realized by being a group because of this homogeneity. In other cases, there's a lot of heterogeneity, and that is much more difficult to understand because your sort of fitness alignment uh, is not aligned with your partners. And that has raised many more problems in evolutionary biology. That being said, it exists. So for example, the great work of Toby Kears, for example, was about understanding major transitions in evolution when you have a lot of symbiosis. So how does it work? How does it work to be 
a higher level individual with your sort of microbial partner, for example. And this then led to many discussions about holobionts, but holobionts is, is, is still a different thing. It's a sort of radical view about this question. The holobiome theory, as you know better than I do, is really about uh, rethinking the whole, um, the whole framework of uh, evolution by natural selection on the basis of this idea that selection would happen at the level of holobionts. I don't think this is true. I mean, I don't think this is necessary to um, investigate the question of in which circumstances something which is the putting together of two different entities can become a unit of selection. I think the holobiont is one way of thinking about that and one pretty radical way of, of thinking about that. But that question is a question that should be shared with every evolution biologist and probably with all biologists in general. There's something about symbiosis being a creative force in evolution, perhaps beyond what we've recognized it so far. Um, but yeah, like there's many fascinating questions that raise from that. So I just want to ask you also what like are the kind of questions that are most fascinating you right now, specifically where you think that some like some philosophical clarification can really help to address them. Yeah, a lot of them. Uh, what would be, I think, um, to me, a very good example would be to think about what we mean by cancer. And a lot of has been, you know, a lot has been written about cancer, the concept of cancer. We don't know what it means. There's a lot of heterogeneity. It's not cancer, it's cancers with an S, you know. So those things have been around forever. And I've been recently very interested in what is meant by cancer. How do we combine a definition of cancer and a definition of tumor? And you know, all sorts of uh, terms that are used by medical doctors and, 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 and biologists in the, in, the, in the lab. And I think that one thing that has been extremely important to me recently is to clarify the different meanings of cancer on the basis of a comparative, comparative approach to cancer. And I think that is really something lacking. So, I'm just gonna give you one example. Most people will tell you cancer exists in uh, mammals and this is what we care about. And mainly we care about humans. Some will say cancer exists everywhere multicellularity exists, which is a huge, I mean, it's, there's, there's a huge difference between saying it's a mammal thing and it's a multicellularity thing. Mm -hmm. And some people have said that and I thought it was super interesting. So when did cancer appear in evolution? We don't know. How did cancer evolve? In which organisms today do we find cancer? And this is a great example because in those cases, it's not just us philosophers saying we should be precise with our concepts. If you don't have a definition of cancer, there's no way in which you can understand the evolution of cancer in the sense of how does it, how is it represented across the tree of life? You know, how is it represented today in, 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 the, in, you know, in organisms around us? And also how did it evolve and how can we draw a tree of life that would be a tree about uh, uh, cancer, for example. That, to me, is a fascinating question. And we are working on that question with many different biologists at the moment because they understand that without a definition, you cannot do the work. And reciprocally, I think, without doing that kind of work, we cannot have a good definition of cancer. Why would we have a definition of cancer that would be restricted to humans? What would have a definition of, cancers, of cancer that would be restricted to mammals? 
So for example, I'm very interested in the work. This is just one example of David Builder. David Builder is at Berkeley and he's been doing great work on cancer in Drosophila. Most people were like, you know, cancer in Drosophila, you know, why are you, are you doing that? There are many reasons for doing that. And one reason is that we can understand, for example, if your definition of cancer must include or not the question of dissemination and metastasis. So metastasis almost never exists in Drosophila, but local invasion exists and the kind of proliferation, you know, uncontrolled proliferation of cells exist in Drosophila. I think this is a great example because if that model can be used as a relevant model of cancer, then there are many things that we cannot do in mice and of course, even less in humans that we could test or we could think about in Drosophila before going to the, to the mouse model. And this is really something I'm obsessed with at the moment, putting together definitions, comparative biology, and creating new experiments that nobody has done because nobody has thought about those things, at least in the way we do as, as philosophers. Yeah, I mean, to be even more extreme, do you think cancer could exist in like, for example, a biofilm? Because if you think of cancer overarching what it is, like some properties like unrestrained proliferation, like some functional decoupling, some cheating over public goods and so on, arguably you could describe like a dysfunctional microbial community as having cancer, or would you not be comfortable with that? So I don't think that is true, but I do think that this is a perfectly reasonable way of seeing things. So this is exactly what I was mentioning before. Some people in the field of cancer, those coming from evolution mainly, and some of them coming from evolution psychology, started to talk about cancer as cheating. If cancer is cheating, and this concept of cheating has been around for a long time in social evolution, following the work of uh, Mena Smith, Hamilton, and many others, if cancer is cheating, and if any kind of cheating counts as cancer, then there's absolutely no problem in saying that cancer exists in unicellular organisms when they create sort of collective entities like biofilms. I don't think that cheating is enough. I think this is probably a necessary condition, but it's not at all a sufficient condition for being, for counting as cancer. But you see here, this is a great example of, you know, why would you believe me? Why would I believe you if you say cancer equals cheating? You know, some people say that. I say, no, it's not true, but what are my arguments for saying that it is not true? So, I mean, this is really a question where the conceptual, empirical, and, 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 and medical aspects, I think, really come together. And for example, recently, there was this very good book by uh, Athena Actipis, The Cheating Cell, about this is all about cancer. And her view is that cancer is cheating. And I think this is a very interesting view, even though this is not my view. So I think now what we need to do is to collectively decide to what extent we want to be more precise in our definition of cancer and why exactly? You know, I don't believe in definition for terminological reasons. I don't think that is very useful. What is useful is to identify different definitions and say, oh, if I adopt that definition, then I'm going to test that. If I adopt that other definition, I'm going to test that. And then we can decide what definition, as you said before, is more fruitful than others. And maybe several of them are useful, but I think it's very important to identify new possibilities by redefining some of these concepts. And sometimes I think people are too narrow in their view of cancer. Sometimes I think they are too open in their view of cancer in the sense that if any kind of cheating counts as cancer, then there are many things I think that we're gonna miss in terms of characterizing what is of interest to us in cancer. But again, this is something that would require a longer uh, argument. Yeah, I guess like when definitions are, definitions are too general, they stop 
being useful. Like if you say the immune system is just like a regulatory agent, you're exactly. describing homeostasis or something. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly pointing, I think, to what is ex- I mean, towards what is exactly the good. So conceptual work must be useful, must be productive, and it is productive only if it finds a sort of good middle range between being too narrow and being too broad. Being too broad is extremely easy and is most of the time completely useless. You know, if you say the immune system is a regulator, if you say homeostasis, most of the time you don't, there's no, there's no benefit at all to science when you say something as broad as that. So we need to do something which is gonna open our minds in a way which is productive without being um, excessive in the broadness of our claims of, or, or our definitions. And I think exactly the same is true for cancer. Yeah, so I mean, you speak about opening our minds. How do you suggest that scientists do that? So people who come more from a scientific background and who are interested in exploring the more philosophical or uh, theoretical aspects, is there anything like particular or books even you would point them to? Um, I think it's more a question of attitude. So yeah, so some books and some papers can sort of be a moment where they realize the kind of things that you know can be done in science. So there are many. Yeah, if I if I cite one, I will regret it because there are many others I could cite as well. So I think it's more important to realize that scientists should be aware that some philosophers, not many, some philosophers have done a lot of science and they want to intervene in in science together with scientists. They never want to intervene into science in a very abstract and philosophical way in the old sense of being sort of above the science. So I think first thing, scientists should be aware that these philosophers exist. They should go to some of their conferences. They should invite them in some of their scientific conferences. They should sometimes read what these philosophers write, especially when it is in scientific journals. When it is in philosophy of science journals, I would be more careful. Sometimes it's a little bit, you know, you know, it's like more internal to the to the to the profession. But I think some of that, you know, for example, my very good friend uh, Lucinda Plan works on, on cancer stem cells. And I think her work has been recognized. There are many other examples, but this is one has been recognized as useful by uh, many uh, scientists. And she's been invited to conferences, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is super important. And then it's just a question of, I mean, many scientists do exactly what I call philosophy in science without having never heard about it, never even heard about philosophy being connected uh, with science. It's just, this is the way they think. So Ruslan Medzitov in immunology is a wonderful example of someone who does conceptual immunology in a way which I find perfect. I would love to do 10% of what he does. And I think he's very conceptual in the sense that his experiments, I mean, the experiments of his group always follow from a certain conceptual framework. And then they do the experiments at the end of a long process of thinking. And that to me is something which is exactly what, you know, many scientists, not all, but many scientists could do and should do. And if they need us, philosophers, this is great. If they don't need us, this is great as well. I mean, what I want to see more in science is more conceptual and foundational thinking. If it is done with philosophers, it's great. If it is done without philosophers, it's great. So the problem is, is when it is not done at all. And, and often this is not done. And I think this one thing that we philosophers can do, especially when we are embedded in a scientific lab, is to constantly say, hey, in addition to the experiments, in addition to the medical aspects of what we do, 
We should care about concepts. We should care about the big picture. We should care about why we've been doing that experiment exactly in the same way in the last 10 years. Why, why not thinking in a different way? Why not adopting a different model? All these things can be boring on a on daily basis because we tend to be a little bit, uh, you know, people are like, you know, I've been doing that for years. I want to continue doing that. But it's also good sometimes to change the way you do things and to change the way you think about your own work and your own discipline. And I think this is exactly what we're trying to do. Okay, great. And you said you were pushing back against giving specific examples, but do allow me to ask, like, are there any, like, or let, let's say that were influential to you, uh, maybe some like text you read when you were uh, at the start of your career? Uh, interesting. Um, I mean, some, some work in, so to me, evolutionary biology has been extremely important. So some work by evolution biologists has been extremely important because it was theoretical and conceptual. So to me, that's been important. I mentioned Dawkins before. I mean, Dawkins is really someone I disagree massively with, but who I think is very inspiring, especially in the extended phenotype, which is probably his best book. If I talk about talked about Maynard Smith before, it was also on purpose. I think this is someone that has, you know, who has been very influential on me. Leo Bass, which is a little bit less famous, Rick Michaud. I mean, these people have been very influential in philosophy. Uh, I would say that Elliot Sober, for example, David Hall, maybe those names do not mean anything to you and nothing to you, but I mean, I mean, those people, or Samuel Kasha, who is in Bristol, I mean, these people are just some examples of people who um, have been sort of constantly putting together philosophy and, and in a way which I think has been very productive. I think closing at the right time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And now to finish off on the power that theoretical models can have in the field of biology. I'd like to leave you with some words from MacFarlane Burnett from his 1960 Nobel Prize reception speech, where he discusses the use of his self and non-self framework. This may be a mere cobweb of fantasy, but in my more optimistic moments, I could hope that it might also function like Ariadne's thread to guide us effectively through part of that biological labyrinth. Oh. 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 Oh.